make noises with my mouth and my vocal cords. We ask that your spirit would, would take the words of yours that I read and it would sink deep into our hearts and our minds and our attitudes in the deepest place of our being and bring hope and bring healing, bring uh, conviction, bring revelation, God, uh, and bring your kingdom. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom of joy. There's pleasures forevermore. We want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. At the same time, we recognize that things aren't the way they ought to be. And we experience pain. We experience loss. We experience poverty. We experience brokenness. We experience injustice. friends, and Nelsons are up here, and some new friends, new faces. Uh, we're glad that you're here, and we also have lunch. We'd love to feed you, so uh, don't be shy. Like, if you think I didn't bring anything to pitch in, we call it a pitch in, but there's already been a lot pitched in, so you just have to dig in. Now it's a dig in. So uh, don't, don't feel shy if you feel like you don't have anything or whatever. If you don't know anybody, you can come sit with me and my uh, chaotic crew or whatever, so we welcome you. Uh, we're going to be looking, uh, we've been in, we just began, we've begun a new series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most popular teachings of Jesus, one of the hardest teachings of Jesus to uh, understand and to apply and to live, but we're, we're looking at this, and uh, I hear a weird noise there, sorry. Oh, that's probably my... That's probably my kids. I thought it was in the, in the speakers. It was like a rattle. Anyway, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Um, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Hogan. He, he played a song that I've been bugging him about for a while. Uh, and before I even really knew Hogan, we were at a worship gathering together. And I think he, you were playing guitar, right? It was out of town. Yeah, yeah. And they played this song. And the question that they were singing just like it wrecked me it, it gripped me and uh, the question i'll try not i'll get emotional if i i won't i'm gonna stop okay what did the elders see that made them all fall down and what did the angels see that made them cry holy like to me that's a beautiful question to ask that's from the book of revelation uh, there was a throne if you read revelation four and five so there's a throne um, and there's elders that are on their own thrones, 24 thrones around there, and they're clothed in white, golden crowns on their heads, and from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and before it were seven torches, which were the seven spirits of God, and, and it was like a sea of glass, like crystal. So it's a, this amazing throne, and there's, a, there's something on the throne, there's someone on the throne, and the elders fall down, and they lay their crowns down, and the angels... And the living creatures spontaneously cry out, worthy and holy. And the question then is, what did they see that made them fall down? And they saw 
uh, it says, um, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who is conquered, and he was like a lamb that was standing as though slain. They see the lamb of God, Jesus, the 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 sacrifice, who's been crucified, but risen again victoriously. And when they behold Jesus, their spontaneous reaction is to fall down, to lay down their crowns, their, all their accomplishment, all their authority, everything that they have in surrender and worship. And the angels cry out, holy, 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 and worthy, worthy, worthy. And to me, it was a beautiful question. And it was also a desire of my heart, open my eyes to see. And so I appreciate him singing that. Um, it also has kind of a nice little guitar portion there that really gets you, gets you going. So I want to see that. I want to, I want to behold that. I want to see uh, Jesus high and lifted up. I want to see the kingdom of God manifest on earth. And we have Matthew 5. We have this, this teaching, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Sean introduced it to us last week, and we're going to go through it. And I have three verses to cover. So we have lunch today. Uh, lunch, is, lunch is at noon, right? So we have a couple hours. I'm joking. Uh, don't don't get up and leave right away. Or uh, I'll try not to try not to be that long. But what we have is is uh, Jesus begins teaching, and, and Sean did. He gave us an intro to this, and uh, but I I want to kind of do that as well. Uh, that's the English teacher in me. But we have the Gospel of Matthew, okay? And uh, these gospels were recorded after. Uh, you know, after a period of time of, since Jesus' uh, ascension. And these were passed down and memorized and recited. And they were part of an oral tradition in the early church. Uh, because they weren't aware of the timeline of Christ's return. And, and so they initially were passing these stor- stories down. Uh, teaching them, memorizing them. And then after uh, a couple decades, they began to record them. So Matthew... Um, is recording this, and he's very careful in his organization and the way that he structures his gospel. And um, just a casual reading, maybe we, we miss some of what he's trying to do here. Um, but Matthew is really uh, displaying or showing that Jesus is a continuation of the biblical story of the Old Testament. He's speaking to people that know the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And he's also showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures. And he takes efforts to do a few things. He wants to tie Jesus as the Messiah who comes from the line of David. So if you read the first chapter of Matthew, it's a genealogy tying Jesus uh, all the way back from Adam through Abraham to David to today, showing he's the Messiah from the line of David. Um, it's also showing that he's a new uh, Moses. He's a, a type of new Moses, a new authoritative, author, authoritative teacher like Moses. And he also displays that he is the Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is God himself with us walking on earth. All right. And so Matthew has an introduction and, uh, you know, a conclusion. And he has what we call like five sections. He kind of divides his gospel up into five sections. And in those five sections, they each have a long, longer block of teaching or discourse of Jesus' spoken words. And what he's doing is he's, in this, I believe, he's connecting Jesus to Moses. The Torah in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, are the books of, called the books of Moses. 
So Moses had five books or five teachings, and he's breaking down in this gospel, showing five teachings of Jesus. Uh, he also takes efforts to show that Jesus, you know, when uh, after he was born and Herod tried to kill all the, the young boys, they fled to Egypt, and Jesus returned from Egypt. So like Moses, Jesus came out of Egypt. He, he's tying them together. Uh, also like Moses, um, Moses passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus passed through the waters of baptism. He displays that uh, in the first four chapters of Matthew. Like Moses went into the wilderness, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted. And then Moses went up to the mountain and he received the teaching, the, the, the law, the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law. He went up on the mountain and received the teaching from the mouth of God, received the word of God. And Jesus, now we have the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on the mountain delivering a new teaching. And he's not just receiving it from the mouth of God. He's giving it. It's coming from his mouth as God with us, Emmanuel. So Moses is taking efforts to show that Jesus is the one who was prophesied to come, a prophet greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. And Moses, remember, delivered them from slavery. He gave them new divine teachings. He saved them from sin. He initiated a new covenant, and he established a new type of community on earth. And these are all things that Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to study. All right, I hope that's interesting to you. Um, and I know that our audience comes from different backgrounds and different uh, levels of familiarity with the Bible. But um, the, the Bible is beautiful, but it's also brilliant. And you see God orchestrating it and giving clues and, uh, and hints and sometimes just very blatant uh, revelation of what he's doing and who he is. So we have, uh, we have the first major teaching of Jesus, and we know what he was doing. If you go back to the end of chapter 4, he come out of uh, the temptation with the devil in the desert. He calls his disciples, and in verse 23, he's gone throughout all, Jew, uh, all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed them. So these are the crowds that are following him. And it says he went up to the mountain, and he sat down, and he opened his mouth. Uh, that's Matthew 5, verse 2. And that brings us to the very beginning of his teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3. And he starts, this is a section we often call the Beatitudes, okay? And uh, I was talking with some friends at supper about it. The name Beatitude uh, isn't literally like, it, it's kind of convenient. It's like, these are the attitudes that you should be or the attitudes that you should have. This should be your attitude, right? It's kind of a, a convenient name. But what it means in the, the Greek is supreme blessedness. Supreme, this, this is like he's declaring the state of supreme blessedness. And this actually, uh, there's, there's eight and then a, a longer ninth blessing. And we're just going to cover three today. Um, but this is a, a format that was used by Jewish teachers. This, isn't, uh, this is not a format that Jesus created and invented 
out of, uh, you know, a, a new thing. He's taking something that they would recognize, and yet he's turning it on his head in a way that would shock and surprise his audience. It would outrage some, and it would bring hope and joy and delight to others. So he's doing something um, shocking and amazing, and he's teaching in a way that's you know, relevant and relatable, but it's also fresh, and it's memorable because of the way that he uh, shocks and surprises them, which is what, a, you know, a masterful teacher does. All throughout Scripture, you'll find uh, poems and songs and portions that start with the first word of Matthew 5, chapter 3, which is blessed or happy. In Psalm 1, we have uh, a blessing. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. So the Jews are very, very familiar with this. When they hear that word, their brain is just spinning and making connections and remembering all that they've heard. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law meditates. He meditates day and night. Psalm 119 begins a very similar way. Psalm 119 is one of the, it's a crazy long psalm. Um, but it begins this way. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. All right? So when a portion of scripture begins with blessed, often what's happened is it's followed by an ideal, okay? It's followed by an ideal of this is the type of person you should be to receive the blessing. These are the types of people who get blessed. And what Jesus is saying doesn't erase or change the truth of Scripture, but he's revealing also a new reality, so Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. He's, this is saying, you are blessed when you do the right things, when you behave the right way. Same with Psalm 19. You're blessed when you behave or take the right actions or make the right decisions, when you don't do the wrong thing and you do the right thing. That's what, what it's saying. That's how we know you're blessed by God. Then you get blessings. And so when he begins teaching and he says, blessed, they are going to expect Jesus to proclaim an ideal. Uh, there was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a community in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls were records they kept, it really was a strange, odd, uh, interesting collection of people and they recorded um, scripture and uh, also sayings from the time. Uh, and one of the, the scrolls that they found had their own version of what we call the Beatitudes. They had eight blessed statements followed by a longer ninth one, which is what we're going to see that Jesus does. And they were very similar to Psalm 1. Blessed are the person who you know, doesn't say wrong things, doesn't do bad things, doesn't think wrong things, doesn't act in wrong ways. You get blessed. Prior to Jesus, there was another teacher um, who had a similar a similar format. There's a poem recorded. And what's interesting is the, these people that are outside the Bible, when they're proclaiming this, 
They're describing their ideal, but they're also describing what they think they already are. So the Pharisees at Jesus' time would have related with that. They felt that they had a, a, a station in life. They, they had an elevated position, and they felt worthy of that position because they had made good choices to get themselves to that place, and they felt they were blessed. And on the contrary then, when they looked at anyone else who wasn't living in what they called blessedness, when they looked at people who were struggling, people who were broken, people who were diseased, people who were poor, people who were humble, and they didn't see blessing on their life, they also assumed that they had been bad people in a, in a, in a more extreme way, or they had done wrong things, or they had made dumb choices, or they had not followed God. If you remember... Um, Jesus healed a man, right? And they, they brought him to Jesus. There was a, I, I don't remember what the condition was. Uh, I should have just looked it up. But they said, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is like this? That was their thinking. If something bad happened to you, you must have been a bad person. And conversely, if you have a good state, you must have been a morally superior person to receive that blessing. And so when Jesus begins... From the get-go, he's turning this on its head. And when he begins that first word, whoop, sorry. When he begins with that first word, blessed, you might, can, you could maybe imagine that those in the crowd who felt good about how their life was going were kind of expecting to be affirmed. And those who... Like the crowd we heard, they were diseased, they were uh, demon-possessed, they, they had afflictions, they had all kinds of issues going on. They might have expected to be blasted or to be like uh, condemned or to, to find themselves like um, uh, the object of scorn or kind of talked down to because of the state that they had got themselves in. Are you following me? I'm trying to set the picture here. And so Jesus begins, and he turns everything on its head. And what we see throughout scriptures, uh, scholars call it the kingdom of God an upside-down kingdom. What Jesus is doing, it, and Christianity in general, is not a subculture. You know what a subculture is? Like, you have a culture, and then within that culture... You have these groups that are a part of that culture, but they have their own unique characteristics. But they more or less adhere to the same values. That's a subculture. It's a, it's a culture within a culture. What Jesus is doing is establishing a counterculture. He's setting up a kingdom that is counter or against, upside down or opposite, the values of the world. All right, so let's get into it. In verse uh, five, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm just going to read the first parts of these verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who thung, hunger. Thunger? Thunger and hurst? Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So from the beginning, he's, he's turning things around. He's saying, when you're poor, 
when you're mourning, when you're meek, when you're hungering, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you're desperate for things to be set right, you are blessed. It's a blessed state being poor, being in mourning, hungering and thirsting, being meek. This is the opposite of what might be expected. Blessed are the rich, blessed are the wealthy, blessed are those who have blessings. Blessed are those who have everything going well, with no loss. Blessed are those who have power and are able to take what they want. Blessed are those for whom everything is going right. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. What hit me is these states, these conditions, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness is when everything is right. When everything is set right. Is in the right place. Operating the right way. So if you hunger and thirst. You're without and desperate. For things to be made right. These people are people. Who are acutely. uh, Intensely. Experiencing. The fall. They're experiencing. The consequences of fallen humanity. You don't have mourning. In God's original design. In the Garden of Eden, there would have never been mourning until sin entered the picture. The Garden was a place of abundance, uh, easy abundance, and fruitfulness. You don't have poverty in the Garden of Eden before the fall. You have abundance. In, in the Garden, everything is there for, for you, everything is there at your feet. The state of meekness doesn't exist because you have everything. And you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness because everything is right. But what, who these people are, they're in a state of experiencing the consequence of sin, of brokenness, of death. All of those things were unleashed and are unleashed in our world because of sin, because of the absence of God. And Jesus says, when you're in that position, you're positioned to receive blessing. Because you know that you need God. And they get promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For, for they shall be satisfied. They get promises. And when reading this, here's the challenge. Uh, we're reading this in America in 2022. And it's difficult for us to understand how we apply. How do I apply this to my life? How am I supposed to be? Do I need to strive to be poor? Do I need to look for opportunities to mourn? Do I need to look for injustices, like put myself under injustice so I can hunger and thirst for righteousness? How do I behave? And there's a a historical fulfilling of this. 
So there's one way that when Jesus said this, this literally was fulfilled and did happen in the life of Jesus as he walked the earth. The next section, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. In chapters 8 through 10, what you see, if you just scan through there, you see this coming true. You see those who are poor in spirit, receiving the kingdom of heaven. You see those who are mourning, being comforted. You see, you see people getting their beloved back from the dead. You see people literally who are mourning, in the state of mourning, and their dead are resurrected when Jesus encounters them. You see people who are poor in spirit, and they enter the kingdom of heaven, and they're filled with joy and spiritual riches. You see people who are meek and humble inherit the kingdom of God. And you see people who hunger and thirst for righteousness be satisfied. When Jesus walks the earth and they encounter him, you see that actually fulfilled. So there's a historical fulfillment of these beatitudes that we see. But there's still a promise of those things for us today. So when you read these things, did he, did he do that and now, it's, now something's changed? Like, did he accomplish those things? And that was true in A.D., you know, whatever, like 20 to 30 or whatever, you know, 30 to 32. Um, how, do we, how are we to understand and live and apply these things? You know, there's a, a type of art that I've kind of found interesting. Um, not that I'm like a, you know, don't think I'm extra fancy or anything because I I'm about to talk about art, but there's, there's art that uh, plays with perspective. There's like 3D art where people will create a sculpture, um, and maybe it's out of random, random pieces, maybe it's out of random uh, materials, maybe it's actually like found art. It would be like things they got out of the trash or antiques or something like that, and they arrange it in a certain way so that when you look at it, you really don't know what you're seeing. It could look like a pile of trash, for instance, or it could just look like some weird abstract art creation that, you know, looks like it just kind of needs to go in the trash or maybe it's best for a paperweight or a boat anchor or something like that. But then there's some where you, you walk around it and you change your perspective and it becomes something beautiful. Like I've seen some that are sculptures of, uh, you know, like just squares and dots and, and lines and then you walk around it and you look at it from a different angle and it's a perfect silhouette or a sculpture of a face. I've seen some that is a, like a table piled with trash, just random trash thrown on this table, refuse. It looks like somebody, you know, it's like, like a, at a park and somebody took the trash can and dumped it on the table, you know, or a kid arranged it. And then they took a shotgun and blasted holes through it, right? And there's these art arrangements that, uh, this one in particular, they shine a light. When you walk into this uh, art installation, they shine a light, and what is revealed is a pile of trash, of rubbish. And then when you're standing there and looking at it, they turn on another light that shines through it. And it displays on the background like a beautiful cityscape or, or a beautiful picture. Are you following me? And I think... What this holds for us is some of us feel like if we shine a spotlight on our life, what we see is trash. We see poverty. We see brokenness. 
we shine a spotlight from our perspective, we see, we see uh, injustice, we see pain, we see brokenness, we see uh, disease, we see weakness. But when God shines a light and changes his perspective and shines through it, we see the kingdom of God and we see beauty. And I think, you know, some of us maybe are coming in here and we feel like we've got it all together and we feel strong and on top of the world. But if we're honest, a lot of us are facing disappointment. We feel ashamed of our situation or our past or the brokenness of, of how, things have be, how things have ended up, the situation we find us, ourselves in. And we don't want a light to shine down on those things because we're ashamed or we're embarrassed. But when we allow a God to work through us and shine his light through us, he displays something beautiful to the world. When he shines a light through our poverty, through our mourning, some of the most powerful stories uh, and testimonies that I know are people who have experienced extreme mourning. I know many people have been encouraged by my parents' story and the loss of their son, my brother. God's done something beautiful with Chris's story and Rosemary's story. Through their mourning, he's shown a light through it and created something beautiful that displays the kingdom of God and gives hope. Many of us have experienced these things, brokenness. Some of them are ongoing, and we don't see the end. And we don't see, all we see is the harsh spotlight and what appears to be our reality. And we don't see what God is doing. But I want to tell you that when you're broken, you're in a beautiful a blessed position because you're ready to receive the work of God in your life. And he wants to work through that. Paul said, in our weakness, we are strong. His strength is made manifest through our weakness. So if you're coming here and you, you feel like, you know, we talk about, the, or people talk about the Sunday best, we, we're kind of doing away with that. You know, like, this is my, you know, my Wednesday best. Like, my best, like, you know. Sometimes I wear my fancy Carhartt for you guys. That was kind of an ongoing joke. If it has a zipper, you know I dressed up. Uh, anyway, we want to put our best face forward. We want to display and cover up and hide our brokenness. But when we're honest and humble about it, the poor in spirit, uh, you know, the poor in spirit, they don't have resources. That's when you're poor. You don't have resources. You're at the bottom, and you're entirely dependent on another. You know, there, I, I've been reflecting on this, and this may be interesting to you, and maybe it's off topic, but uh, I've been interested in the different ways to be poor in the world. Because I've, lived in, I've been, lived in and been around like extreme poverty. Uh, my family and I lived in India. I've done work in the slums. I've been in homes of people who have, uh, you know, they have a small hut that would be the size of one of my kids' bedrooms, and that's divided into two rooms with a kitchen, and it has one small bed where their family sleeps. Their floors are packed mud um, that they just, they're down by the river, they pack mud, and they go outside to use the bathroom, and they go outside to scoop up cow dung, and they smack it on the side of their, their house so that it dries and they can cook with. Those people have a type of poverty that's different from some of the poverty we experience in America. You know, in America, we have, there's a, there's a poverty where you have things and you're afraid you're going to lose them. 
And there's a poverty where you have nothing and you don't know how you're going to eat tomorrow. There's a difference. And you behave a different way. Uh, I think Jesus adds the meek here because a meekness is there's a gentleness. And actually that word could denote that you have some power, but you don't exercise it and you're gentle. Or you don't take matters into your own hands. There's a meekness. And there's something that is in a type of poverty where you don't try to scramble and frantically make things happen and take matters into your own hands when you are at a place where you trust God for everything. There's a beauty in that. The meek inherit the earth. There's different types of poverty. But if you're, our reality are these things. Things are not as they should be. The world is broken. We have in ourselves no moral authority, power, strength, or resources to bring about our own salvation, to bring about our own blessedness. And when we realize that, we're in a position to receive the kingdom of God. Things are not as they should be, and we experience loss, and that only points to sin and our need for a Savior. And when we experience that, we are positioned uniquely to receive and encounter God and His blessing. When we're at a place where we uh, don't take matters into our own hands, meekness is, when I picture that, I, I picture uh, a humility, but also in there, there's something of strength and a trust where I'm not going to go crazy trying to make things happen and, and fighting and clawing and, and biting to, to get my scraps, but I'm waiting and I'm being gentle and I'm trusting God. And that hunger and thirst for righteousness, we see the brokenness of the world. We see the injustice. You can look at the world today and you see injustice. And you can get angry and bitter about it. The last few years, my goodness, we've seen, we've seen injustice. But we have to be careful because there's people uh, with that hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's people who see offense everywhere they look. They, they get offended everywhere they look. They see what they think are people doing them wrong and and things not working out for them, and there's a bitterness that they, can, that they can take on. But when we see the brokenness of the world and we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, we're positioned to be satisfied by God. So I want you to take hope today. I want you to take hope. If this is who you are, Jesus is there for you. God wants to work through your brokenness and show something beautiful to the world. He doesn't want you to strive. We're going to hear about that in the rest of the, the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't want you to strive. He doesn't want you to toil. He doesn't want you to frantically try to make something of yourself morally, to bring about your own salvation. He wants you to recognize this is your reality and run then to your Savior. Run to him and submit to his rule and reign. He's preaching the kingdom. That's his message. Submit to God's rule and reign. You know, I have one more thought. I was thinking uh, the, the two-part portion of this, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then the next part, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a reality and there's an expectation or a promise. Do you see that? Here's the reality, poor in spirit. Here's the promise, kingdom of heaven. 
And I think there's people who uh, maybe understand the reality. They feel like they are, they're poor in spirit, but their expectation is more poverty. There's people who are mourning, and their expectation is more trouble, more mourning, more loss. There's people uh, who are meek in a way that's kind of like milk toast, you know, like they're just a sad sap. Like they're just, they're just sitting there and everything's happening to them and nothing's going right and they just expect things to continue that way. And there's people who look at the world and see the things that are wrong and they just expect things to keep going that way. And I'll tell you, these people, I've met them, I know them, I talk to them, they're some of the most uh, unhappy people, some of the most miserable people because they see the reality and their, their expectation is that um, their current state is their constant state. What they're currently going through is just going to maintain forever. But when you know someone who sees the situation that they're in, and yet they have the hope of the second half of these things, people who are poor but expect the kingdom of heaven, I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, those are the happiest people I've ever met. I can take you to believers in India. I can take you to believers in orphanages uh, in Central America. I can take you places around the world. I can show you. I have friends who are working in some of the most desperate, poverty-stricken places in the world. And the believers there are the happiest, most joyful people you've ever met. So you may say, I'm in a poor state. But if you believe the second part, you're becoming a person of the kingdom. You trust God's promises, and you will be blessed. There's people who experience loss, and all they do is want to complain about it, whether it's severe or it's petty and minor, first world problems. And if they expect that to keep happening, they're miserable people to be around. But I've been around people who are in the deepest mourning, and they have been comforted in that, in that moment by God's Spirit. And they have the most peace and joy. They are blessed. Are you tracking with me? I've seen people who have take no action. They take no aggressive uh, action necessarily. They are meek. Things are happening to them. People are lying about them. People are slandering them. People are trying to tear down their, their, their life or their character. And they just sit there and they trust God. And they believe that they're going to inherit the earth. And these are some of the most powerful people I've ever encountered. They are blessed. And I've seen people who have suffered severe injustice. Things have been done to them physically or emotionally, mentally, spiritually. They have been attacked. They have been abused. They have suffered injustice in the world. Yet they trust God and expect to be satisfied. And these are blessed people. So the, the reality of this is we look at our situation and we add to it faith that Jesus is who he says he is. And we are blessed. And we are the salt and light of the earth. And we bring his kingdom to this earth. All right, I'm going to stop. That wasn't two hours, okay? So, uh,
Fica à vontade.